In your Bibles to James chapter 1, we're just going to look at one verse today. And uh, the, uh, the, the elders, the session of our church have asked, we were doing this prior to COVID, have asked me to take one Sunday a month, the first Sunday of the month, um, and discuss a, what we're calling a hot topic. Uh, so we would, on that week, go away from our current series on the Revelation and discuss things that maybe are just in our laps or in our faces or kind of pulling at us in different directions. And so today will be kind of an introductory um, sermon for these hot topics. I was also asked to give an explanation as to why we are reciting the Heidelberg Catechism. We, that is not the catechism of our church. We're Westminster. So we believe in the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. Those are what we call secondary standards, our primary standard being, what's our primary standard? The yeah, the Bible, the Word of God. So, by the way, all churches, as you'll learn in our Westminster class today, that you're going to be in for at least 20 minutes before you leave, uh, that all churches do have secondary standards one way or another. Anybody who says they don't, they're not really aware of what's going on. But I, as we were reciting this very wonderful catechism question, and maybe think of a, uh, of a controversy in the church that made me think about this sermon a little bit. I don't know if you realize that there's occasionally controversies in religion. Did you know that? That does happen from time to time. And maybe the biggest controversies uh, have revolved around these two words, justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Justification is a single act. It is a, a forensic declaration of acquittal. The gavel goes down and at that moment when, by faith, you trust in Christ, God no longer sees you as you are. He sees, as it were, the righteousness of Christ. It's, a, it's one thing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul writes in Romans 5, we have peace with God. Then there's this thing called sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing process where we're being conformed into the image of Christ throughout our entire lives. Now... Why are these things so controversial? I'm saying this, and maybe most of you are going, well, that's obvious. But that was one of the reasons why there was a Reformation, because the Roman Catholic Church believed that justification came at the end of sanctification. In other words, you, you need to be sanctified and sanctified and sanctified, and when you're finished being sanctified, when you've been fully conformed into the image of Christ, then you're justified, then you have peace with God. And for most people, that doesn't happen in this life. So you know where they had to go. Purgatory, right? You go to purgatory and finish being having your sin purged. And uh, that could be thousands of years in, in purgatory. So that was one controversy that we see that was between the, the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, and the Protestant Reformation. Another one, though, is this. And this is a little closer to home. That we are not saved by faithfulness. We're saved by faith alone. It is the instrument of faith. God opens our blind eyes. He gives our deaf ears the ability to hear. He takes our heart of stone. He turns it into a heart of flesh. Right? He, he regenerates us and then grants us faith. And that faith is the instrument by which we are then justified because of its, its faith in Christ. Now, there are some people who would say, well, no, it's, it's faithfulness that saves us. And 
That also was a big no-no in the Reformation. But at the same time, we need to understand this, that faith, saving faith, is always at some level accompanied by faithfulness. Right? Those two things necessarily go together. You mean, think about, um, think about a person who needs a heart transplant, right? Somebody whose heart, they're not working. It's not working. And it's affecting everything. Right? It, it affects their skin color. It affects their hair. It affects their digestive system. It affects the, their ability to take a walk. All these things are affected, right? But then you get a new heart, right? And now, you have, because you have a new heart... You can eat better, your skin gets its color back, you can take walks and what have you. That's what God does when he gives you a new heart. You don't give yourself a new heart. And it's not as if God's going, look it, when, when you get your heart strong enough, we'll let you become a member of the church and we'll save you. No, I'm going to give you a new heart. Yet let me tell you this, that if a person has a heart transplant, and all of a sudden, you realize your skin is still the awkward color. You're still gaunt. You still can't eat. Then you have to ask yourself, is this really, really a working heart? Do you, in fact, have a new heart? If everything that that new heart is supposed to produce isn't happening. And this catechism question this morning made me think of that, I have to say. Because it's a wonderful question that we, you know, we, we, we don't belong to ourselves. And there's so much that could be said about that, that. But that God has basically, through the precious blood of Christ, put his name upon us. He completely governs our life and all this, right? So that's it. But at the very end, we see that by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. By his Spirit, his Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm his child, right? Romans 8. But then it goes on, and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. See, all of a sudden, we're moving into sanctification. Paul does this in almost all of his letters. For, For three chapters, he will tell you who you are in Christ. And then somewhere in chapter 4 or in Romans chapter 12, he's going to go, Therefore, live in a manner consistent with who you are. And we always have to have that order. Anyways, I wanted to have that in our minds as we take a look at the sermon this morning. Again, it's uh, Romans, or uh, James 1.27. I forgot to start my watch. You guys are in a lot of trouble. As if it makes any difference, right? James 1.27, hear now the word of God. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would truly seek pure and undefiled religion before you. Uh, the word religion has taken on so many different meanings in the world in which we live. We do pray, Father, that, that we would recognize what it means to live a life pleasing to you. We do pray at the same time that we would never think 
that somehow living that pleasing life is what justifies us before a holy God, uh, deliver us from that folly. But at the same time, may we not use our freedom in Christ as a cloak for vice, as a license for disobedience. May we all the more seek to to love you, to love one another, uh, and to walk in righteousness because we belong to you by the great purchasing blood of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a rapidly changing moral and philosophical environment. Now, don't get me wrong. I know how old I am. And I'm sure that it's nothing new for older people to be a little bit critical of kind of what's going on in their world. You know, I'm sure that, I'm sure that Abraham, Moses, and David all had their kids these days moments, right? Uh, throughout the course of history, that's, you just see that next generation. I mean, people my parents' age, they were all about Frank Sinatra. And, you know, and to this, they're like, you talk, talk to older people today, Frank Sinatra's okay. That Elvis, it all went downhill with that Elvis, you know. Well, I don't know. Do it my way, really? Is that a Christian thought? You know, I'm going to do it my way, and I'm not, not the one who kneels and so forth. So every generation's got their, like, that, this new generation, they got problems coming up. But things seem to be changing much more rapidly now than they ever have in the course of human history. Think about this. During the entire course of human history, man had not mastered the ability to fly. Right? So going all through, however long you think history is, man didn't master the ability to fly until 1903. And they had a, you know, the Wright brothers had a, a less than one minute flight. And then a mere 66 years later, assuming you believe that we actually landed on the moon, 66 years, we got a guy on the moon. So you got all of history, we can't fly. Then you fly, then boom, you're on the moon. I was leading a Bible study at a retirement home, and there were women in that Bible study who remembered both of those things happening. Like, oh, yeah, I was six, and they were those right, brothers. And then all of a sudden, Neil Armstrong is laying on the moon in one lifetime. We, we truly live in a different age. You know, there were, the, you know, they, people break history up into ages, right? You got the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the Middle Ages, the Age of Reason. And usually, you know how long those ages were? Hundreds of years, if not thousands of years for these ages. But in the 20th century, really starting in like the 50s, we had the Space Age, the Computer Age, the Digital Age, the Information Age, the New Media Age, to the point where these ages are actually overlapping. And when, what we see in this ages, when it really gets down to it, is these ages all involve a thing called information. It's all about information. We and our children can almost immediately know what's going on all over the world, literally at our fingertips. As a matter of fact, there's so much information, we don't know who to believe anymore, right? You're just getting it, and you've got to look at eight different records of one event and then draw a Venn diagram to figure out actually what really happened. Well, this information, I think, can be very good, but it can also be very dangerous. It made me think of 
when Luther decided to write the Bible for the common man, right? And he's going to write it in common German for citizens to, to read so that the normal layperson can have their own Bibles. And Erasmus said, no, 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 you can't do this. It's going to be very dangerous giving people Bibles. It's going to be a very dangerous kind of enterprise that you're going to engage in because they're going to handle these Bibles irresponsibly. And you know what's interesting? Luther didn't dis- disagree with them. Luther agreed it is going to be dangerous to give the common man Bible. Maybe he was anticipating the kind of theology that we read on Facebook these days. But Luther also said this, it'll be worth it. It's worth the danger. Well, in the same way, this, I think this great amount of information that we have can be good or it can be bad. I think it's worth the risk. And I think we need to recognize, though, at the same time, the danger. It is, uh, we we tend to think of the church as being attacked from the outside. But the problem, the danger here is, is that the information that is out there, kind of the spirit of the age that is out there, is coming into the church. That's why I'm doing this hot topics. It's not just to go, wow, what's going on out there? What is coming in here? These infections come into the church. They come into seminaries. They come into the pulpit. They come into the congregation. And this isn't anything new. The Bible talks about this type of thing happening. The conflict wasn't always with those outside of the church. We read in in Jude talking about people within the church that they are spots in your love feasts. They are clouds without water. These are people in the church who had this appearance of being a cloud that was going to somehow produce you know, rain for the crops, but actually there's no water at all. They're just a cloud. Timothy talks about, or Paul writing to Timothy, talks about these people who creep into your households. The enemy transforms himself into an angel of light, seeking to win the hearts and the minds of you, the church. That's why he wants to look like an angel, because he wants to be here. And again, this is nothing new. It's just quicker now. I mean, I'm trying to do research on what are the hot topics Matter of fact, we sent out an email. I don't know if you, hopefully you got it. And you might want to contribute to go, well, you know, Pastor Paul, once a month, here's what I think we need to hear. And some people have sent in suggestions. I'm starting to to catalog these suggestions. Some of them I maybe will give a sermon on. Some of them will maybe we'll handle in Sunday school or maybe we'll do an evening class where we talk about something that might take a little more time than one sermon or one Sunday school class. But there's so much going on that it's almost hard to keep track of. According to Barna, get this, I thought this was an interesting statistic. Millennials, you know what a millennial is? The millennials are between about mid-20s to mid-30s. And Gen Zers, right? they're between their teens to mid-20s. I think I'm a boomer. I like that title, boomer. Anyways, according to Barna... The, the millennials and Gen Zers are more likely to think 
that what is morally right or wrong actually changes over time. Also, Gen Zers in particular are far, far less likely to challenge other beliefs. So they're, they're, somebody has their system of beliefs, you know, teens to mid-20s, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to go down that road, I'm not going to challenge it. Now, I want to talk about that briefly because I think those, that stat has both good and bad, and let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. I mean, how is it good to acknowledge moral changes across time and societies? Now, let me just be clear. I'm not granting that. I'm not granting that morality changes throughout the course uh, of history. But at the same time, the good thing in that, at least the, the thing that is of value, is that we begin to understand what is happening in the lives of other people. See, it's very easy for us to go, that is ridiculous. What is going on in the world right now? And we can pick, you can just pick any number of things and just go, that is evil, that is dark, that is demented, that is unsound. But what I, what I, would, what I think we should try to do is understand what is going on in the minds of these people that leads them to this conclusion. How, what, how are they thinking because some of the things I just don't get, and I really want to hear, I really want to listen before I actually blurt out my answer. You know, there's nothing worse, I don't want to say there's nothing worse, but when you're in a conversation with somebody and you can tell that they're making no effort to understand what you're saying. And I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person who, when you're talking to me, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I'm going, to, I'm going to repeat back to you in my own words what you just said and correct me if I'm getting you wrong. I think we need to be that type of person. Well, <clears throat> if we're going to be fruitful in our discussions, we need to understand at some level what's going on in the world in which we live. You know, the Apostle Paul and I don't know if we think about it this way. He made a really interesting statement. He said in 1 Corinthians, he said, I want to be all things to all men that I might, by all means, save some. All right? What, what did he mean by that? You know, he kind of gives a list. You know, to the Jew, I became Jew like a Jew. To a Gentile, like a Gentile. To the weak, I became like weak. I became strong, strong, and so forth. See, what that tells me is he had to have some idea of what it was like to be one of those people. I don't think he compromised his morality, but I think what he did was, I need to understand, if I want to be all things to all people, what are all people like? What, what is, what, what, how is this clock ticking in their head that I might understand what they are going through? And I think it can be healthy for our young people to at very least be cognizant of the pull and the claims and the ethics of this rapidly changing culture in which we live. I, I want them to be aware of that little siren. Why, what, why is it? What is it that is causing you to not want to challenge the beliefs of others? Is it a fear of being accused of being judgmental? Is that what it is? Or is it something else? 
Because there's this other great danger I think we need to be aware of. It is the danger of the logical fallacy of mass appeal, like argumentum ad populum. In other words, if enough, if enough people believe this to be okay, it must be okay. Going back to my Bible study with all the widows, right? they still were barely getting their arms around the idea that Clark Gable wasn't wearing an undershirt in it happened one night with Claudette Colbert in 1939, or what year it came out. The idea that people would live together who weren't married was just, they just can't, they couldn't believe the world had reached that level. The idea that same-sex couples would get married, I never had the heart to tell them that was happening. I mean, I was afraid there might be medical issues. But we all live, we live in a culture now where just what was happening 50 or 60 years ago, even the culture would have said, no way. But now, because of the mass appeal, everybody thinks it's okay. It's what we're so easily manipulated by the surroundings that we're in. And again, I'm not, at this point, so concerned with what's going on in the world. I think that's important. I'm concerned with the fact that it's affecting us in the church. It's affecting me. And I think we need to be aware of that. As I was actually preparing my talk for the Bonson Conference, I came upon this book, and which I'm going to talk about in more detail, I guess, in that conference. I came across this book called in Defense of Looting. Any of you guys heard of this book? In Defense of Looting. Basically, it was a book written by a person, and it's popular. I don't know if it's on the top 10 bestseller list. It's popular, justifying rioting and looting. And that the, the riots and the looting that take place are actually noble things taking place in our culture. Now, I can't get into the details of that. I don't want to go down that road right now. I will say this, though. As I listened to this person being interviewed, and as I read some of the interviews, I realized their arguments are kind of compelling. Dark, insidious, evil, but compelling. And I think a person who is not prepared to handle that type of rhetoric could be won over to the idea that, yeah, the looting that has been taking place in our culture, especially in the last three, four, five years, is, is, is a morally upright act. See, you know, you're kind of going, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. But what I'm telling you is, they, these things get legs. If you're not grounded in the word of God, these things get legs. They take off. And if they're taking off in the culture, guess where they're going to end up? In the church. We need to be aware of this. Well, some of these topics, again, I'm, I'm asking for you to go, well, here's what I think is really, here's what I'm dealing with, or here's what the young people are dealing with. You know, we'll talk about things like abortion or, you know, these gender concerns. Talk about stealing. I mean, that seems obvious, right? Stealing. But do you realize, I mean, I have a buddy, I have a number of friends who are teachers, and my one buddy, you know, he, he teaches in a certain area where, the actual ability to steal something and get away with it is viewed as a noble purchase. So stealing isn't wrong. 
But if you can get away with it, it's actually high fives. We'll talk about, you know, even in Mike's prayer today, we'll talk about, you know, marital fidelity, premarital relationships, perhaps. We'll talk about sins of thought. We're gonna, I think, you know, we'll probably have a, a sermon on forms of government. Is, is patriotism biblical? Is it not biblical? Should we have a flag in the church, an, an American flag? If so, why? If not, why not? You know, these types of things that we're being hit with on a regular basis. But for now, in this sermon, my main concern is that we all seek to be aware of the pull the world and the flesh has on us. Are you aware of it? Are we influencing the world or is the world influencing us? Well, in the passage we read, James admonishes Christians to two things. To bear fruit and to remain unstained. So, take this as a challenge, you know. If our, if our religion is to be godly, if we were really going to have pure and undefiled religion, I'll just put it this way, it should be marked with good deeds. You, you should be doing something. It's not enough just to come to church and hear that it's right between you and God and you're not doing anything. You're not living a life consistent with who you are. James talks about widows and orphans. I mean, I don't think it's an exhaustive list. You know, Jesus talks about those who are hungry and thirsty and lonely and naked and imprisoned and, you know, you visited them and he's like, when you visited them, you visited me. Are you doing anything? What are you doing to advance the kingdom of God? What are you doing, even in terms of feeding the hungry? What are you doing in terms of, of reaching out and, and helping? Are you willing to be helpful to your neighbor? If I go to your street and I knock on your neighbor's doors and I say, well, you know, what kind of neighbor is so-and-so? Are they going to be like, I don't know, he's never even said a word to me. All I know is he leaves his trash cans out too long. <laughs> you know, his motorcycle's really loud. I mean, what, what kind of influence, what kind of person are you? Because what, we, what we're seeing in this passage is, this one verse, is that if you want to live out your faith, you've got to be willing to get your hands a little bit dirty. But he's quick to say, look, you might get your hands dirty, but you can't get your heart dirty. That's kind of sometimes a fine line to walk. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, which he prayed for his followers, which includes us, by the way, because he says, not only do I pray for them, but I pray for those who will believe as a result of them, and that goes all the way to us. He prays in a very similar fashion. In John 17, 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, they're going to be in the world, and they're going to be rubbing elbows with some of the darkest people in this world, but I want, I want you to keep them from the evil one. Now, during the course of history, there have been various methods people have used to kind of keep themselves from the evil one. Sometimes radical departures from cultures. I'm thinking like rural Pennsylvania Amish. Like, hey, I'm going to just kind of get away from the world. I'm going to go live on the side of a mountain. 
The way I'm going to succeed in being unstained by the world is for me to get as far away from the world as I possibly can. But that is patently unbiblical. This isolationist attitude that a lot of people have doesn't really comport well with Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't even comport well with the behavior of Jesus himself, who was often criticized for the company that he kept. Yet I guarantee you that you know, a lot of people will, will talk about Jesus keeping company with sinners as if that justifies a certain type of ungodly behavior while you're with the sinners. Because I guarantee you that Jesus didn't drink too much and engage in dirty jokes and allow the sinners to govern the environment. I guarantee you that if you were in that room with Jesus, he was holding court. He was in charge of what was taking place. And yet at the same time, we see that he was a friend of them. The Apostle Paul in Galatians gives us a very interesting verse. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And he kind of sets priorities. And I mean, I know I've told you this many times. You know, if I, all things being equal, if I, go, if I walk into my study and I have three calls, one's my wife, one's a church member, and one is a member of our community, my wife gets called back first, church members get called back second, and the member of the community gets called back third. But they all get called back. And I, you can't read this, a verse like this, without recognizing that our good deeds cannot merely be restricted to those in the church. It's got to go beyond the church. Now, again, it gets tricky because we need to engage the world while at the same time remaining unstained by it. And there's a cost that we must not be willing to pay when we allow ourselves to be influenced when we allow not our hands to get dirty, but when we allow our hearts to get dirty. It makes me a little nervous sometimes. You know, maybe those of you who don't know, when I first came to this church 32 years ago, we were known as a homeschooling church. And almost everybody in the church homeschooled. And I think still a pretty high percentage does. But at the time, homeschooling was kind of new. And it wasn't well received by a lot of churches. And one of the reasons they came to our church was they could sit around other people and not feel judged. Matter of fact, sometimes the people who had their kids in public school felt a little judged. You know, but you know, it, you know there's not a little judgment going on. I guess it's not a church, right? <laughs> but it used to make me a little nervous when one of the arguments that somebody would give is that their six-year-old is a great witness to their pagan teacher. I'm like, that may be true. But is that really the risk you're willing to take, that your six-year-old is going to have more of an influence on their 30-year-old pagan teacher than their pagan teacher is going to have on them? That made me a little, that argument just didn't sit well with me. I mean, I get it, and it was kind of new, and it was kind of different. But we need to, be rec- we need to recognize the type of influence that uh, we're surrounded by. Now, we recently went through the Old Testament in our Route 66 series, And 
we see something I think really interesting in Leviticus 18, 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. What's he saying there? What he's saying is, don't be like the people that you just left, and don't be like the people that where you're where you're going. Matter of fact, you need to be different than all of them. Now, the Apostle Paul actually gives kind of a new covenant slant to this because the new covenant is not really a covenant that includes the kind of political boundaries that the old covenant had, right? The old covenant, it was Israel. The new covenant is what? Every nation, kindred, and tongue, right? It's all nations. But Paul uses the same type of thinking in his argument in his letter to Corinth, which, by the way, was a horrible, horrible city, right? So the influence of what was going on in Corinth was coming into the church, and Paul writes this, Therefore, come out from among them, see, he's quoting the Old Testament, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. See, it's kind of, a, he's using it, 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 the, those, the dietary laws and the idea of touching things unclean ended in the Old Covenant, but the principle is the same. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. I mean, to put it, to put it very briefly, especially with this city of Corinth, Paul writes it really in one phrase. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. It's as simple as that. Somebody asked me recently, If, I, if older me could talk to younger me, like what advice would you give? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff, right, that I could. But the thing that at least popped into my head was I would advise younger me to be more careful about the people I've chosen to live with when I was single. Because even though they were wonderful people, but they weren't always believers, and it was very, again, insidious and subtle, the kind of influence that they had on me. I mean, I think I had an influence on them. But I found myself in an environment that was an unhealthy environment. And I think we all need to be aware of that. You know, I hate to sound cliche, right? You guys have heard Gigo. You know Gigo? Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's kind of going, look at. Don't be handling that which is unclean. Again, understand the metaphor. Get your hands dirty, but don't get your heart dirty. Succinctly put, and by the way, when he says do not be deceived, he doesn't always say do not be deceived. right? So when Paul says do not be deceived, what do you think? Why do you think he's writing that? I think he's writing that because clearly it's one of these things that we can easily be deceived about. I mean, if you were to ask younger me, will living there have a negative effect upon me? I'd be like, no, that's, I'm strong enough. Don't worry. I can handle that environment. I needed somebody to come to me and say, do not be deceived. You, you don't have the wisdom to understand the vulnerable situation that you're putting yourself into. 
Anyways, to kind of sum this up, we are to bear fruit and we are to remain uninfluenced by the world. So the next question is, how do I know? Now, down the road, we'll talk about maybe Christian service and what have you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you might be going, okay, I want to keep myself unstained by the world. How do you know that that's happening? How do you know that you're succeeding in keeping yourself unstained by the world? I'm going to give you a two-step process here, because I know we like, our minds like these types of categories. Self-examination and outward examination. Self-examination, 2 Corinthians 13 Paul writes, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I think it's a very healthy thing for Christians to take inventory from time to time to be reminded that we are, by his blood, children of God. I mean, do you have that assurance? Do you examine your own heart? Do you know that you are a child of God? To meditate upon the certainty that we belong to him John writes, you know, I write, we write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? Because if you don't know you have eternal life, and if in fact you don't have eternal life, and you're listening to what I'm saying, at very best, this is going to just be pretty decent advice followed by death and hell. And that is not the direction we want to take. So you examine yourself to see if you are in fact in the faith. Do you truly believe that Jesus died and rose again for you? Then we need to take inventory in terms of what's going on in our own minds, in our own behavior. Are we beset with lust and anger and greed and selfishness and jealousy and drunkenness? I mean, do these things have you by the throat? And if they have you by the throat, why do they have you by the throat? Are you feeding them? Right? You know, the, the, the monster that you feed is the monster that's going to grow. And you, you need to kind of recognize if things are flashing into your head, if things are coming out of your mouth, if you are behaving a certain way, all of that is the result of having allowed yourself to be influenced by an environment that you maybe shouldn't even be in. I mean, what are those things? What movies are you watching? What books are you Reading, what YouTube channels have you? What music are you listening? I mean, you know, who are your idols? Who are your heroes? Who's influ- you know, who has that influence? You come to church. I don't get me wrong. I recognize that my sermons go long. And it was a great prayer today, long. <laughs> but I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you're going to walk out of here and you'll be, you're going to be bombarded all week long by the world. So, you know, maybe just take a deep breath and pray a little longer and feel, you know what? I'm here praying. Just take a deep breath and go, he won't go over an hour in the sermon today. (laughs) But when you think of that, just what we're getting bombarded with, in in terms of, you talk about the, the information age, but also the people by which you're surrounded. Now, there's a downside to this self-examination, right? So I'm saying, number one, examine yourself. The other one is outward examination. You see, with self-examination, I'm be honest, it's just too easy to give yourself a pass, right? 
you just, you just, I, um, I run still on the beach. And uh, <laughs> that guy over there, he does too. We have the exact same policy because we run on the beach in the same beach, but we look at each other and we don't ever run together. And it's kind of like, yeah, we don't want to do that. I don't want to run with anybody, neither do you. Why is that? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is I, I like the solitude. I like being on the beach, and I like my own thought, and I, I don't like talking. I can't understand people running and talking. It just doesn't work for me at all. But, and this is probably the bigger reason, I want to be able to run as slow as I want. <laughs> That's what you're coming. Right? And if I have a running partner, they're going to make me run maybe harder than I want to run. And I don't want to be that healthy. <laughs> we need another set of eyes in our lives. You know, one of our membership vows is the idea that you're going to re- receive the potential discipline of the church if you're found wanting in life or doctrine, right? But if, if you just go to church and disappear, we don't even know what's going on in your life. We don't know what you believe. We don't use us here and you bolt out. But there are a number of passages in Scripture that just don't seem to allow that to be the means by which the covenant people exist. I'll just give you a couple. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We also see in James 5, 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, not to get into the details of what all that means other than this, that those passages require that you have developed a relationship with somebody who's actually going to do those things in your life, or you're going to do it for somebody else. There must be a relationship. It's not just the listening to a sermon. It's not just the singing together, but a robust pursuit of relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That needs to happen. Now, you know, we have a church and, you know, Dan and today, Mike, we have announcements, right? We have that event and this event. Sometimes the events are recreational, like a game night. Sometimes they're ministerial, you know, like Beacon Light Rescue Mission. Sometimes they're instructive, you know, home groups and what have you. But when it gets right down to it, all those things have value. I mean, there was a time when people, I remember being criticized because we had a lot of fun things, right? They're like, oh, your church really is into the fun stuff. And we had the other stuff too, but, you know, people like to be that way, right? Oh, you just have a lot of fun stuff. But even the fun stuff, if you're playing uh, Yahtzee, right? You're having to sit across the table and getting to know somebody. Right? So you're developing a relationship. We have these things so that you develop relationships with each other. You get to know others. Others get to know you. And if you don't have that, then the ability to actually obey these passages goes out the window. You need another set of eyes in your life. And sometimes it might be basic moral behavior. It might be, you know what, I think you uh, just had one too many drinks last night. Or it may be um, like a 
theological or philosophical position that you're beginning to develop, where somebody's going, wait, what are you saying? And so now you have a discussion. And you're, it's not, you're not going through this alone. Now, I don't know, maybe you just think you're so amazingly strong, you know. I've got all 27 spiritual gifts. I don't need I don't think there are 27 spiritual gifts, but this idea that I don't need that, you need it. Nobody's strong enough that they don't need it. I, sometimes I watch tennis. You know, so I'm watching tennis. I'm watching the best tennis players in the world. You know, one guy just retired who was at a Federer. You know, I mean, they're unbelievable, right? They're the best in the world. Maybe some say the best ever, but they're replaying. And then in between sets, I'll see him look up into the stands. And I'm like, who's that guy looking? Who's he looking at? Then the announcer will say, oh, Roger Federer's looking at his coach. I'm like, who's coach? Is his coach the best tennis player in the world? I'm pretty sure he's not. But what Federer needs is another set of eyes on his game. He needs somebody else to look at him from a different angle to reveal to him things that he may not be able to tell in terms of his own self-examination and self-evaluation. Do you have a person like that in your life? Do you have a person who, if you go south, if you go sideways, if you find yourself kind of falling off the rails, if you, know, if you are under the Redondo Pier at 3 o'clock in the morning, they're going to find you. Do you have that person? Because you need to have that person in your life. There needs to be outward and inward evaluation. Well, finally, none of this, none of this is of any value. Inward evaluation, outward evaluation, none of this is of any value if we do not have a trustworthy and objective absolute, transcendent, and knowable standard. What is the standard by which our lives are to be governed? Earlier I mentioned that the millennials and the Gen Zers are more likely to think that what is morally right and wrong changes throughout the course of time and in different cultures. And I have to say, history is littered with the corpses of those who were the victims of those people who put this theory to practice. People who said, I will decide for my time what is right and what is wrong. And if it costs a generation of people, so be it. It's my vision that matters, not some book that's going to tell me about some God who thinks he's in charge. I agree. So what is the one constant by which all examination, whether it's self, outward, social, ethical, political, theological, is to be governed? Jesus wasn't unclear on this. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isn't it remarkable that here we are, 2,000 plus years later, still studying his words? I mean, going all the way back even to the Old Testament, Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Friends, God has graciously deposited his word in his creation, 
and we have the wonderful responsibility of ever growing in our knowledge of it, I do hope that you're reading your Bibles. I, um, I do hope that, uh, that you're, you're in it on a regular, daily basis. I have been so fortunate that God providentially gave me a job where I have to read the Bible every day. I wish you all had that job, but there are no openings here. There might be soon. But one of the things, you know, that I love, you know, to hear from my own family members, what I love to hear from members of our church, and I don't ever, I can't always get back to you right away, but I never get tired of it, is when somebody goes, Pastor Paul, I was reading this passage, and I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. See, that tells me you're in the Word and you're wrestling through it. Are you doing that? I hope you're doing that. You know, when I I went to, first time Lauren and I went to China, I think it was 2004, and it was the underground church, and they did not have the advantage of secondary standards. They didn't have a lot of Christian literature. They, They didn't have a lot of things that you and I take for granted. But I'll tell you what they were quite good at. When I was up front, obviously I had a translator, and I would go in... Let's turn to Jeremiah. Let's turn to Isaiah. Let's turn to Leviticus. They knew not only exactly where it was, they knew the passage. Like, they knew their Bibles really well. And so when I began to explain what a passage meant, I could see them enjoying the fact that now I understand what that verse means. Now I understand what that pericope means. Now I understand what that passage means. Because they had read the Bible... They had hidden that word in their heart, and it was just a matter of instruction and the Holy Spirit making it real to them. And I hope that's true with everybody in this room, that you're like going, you're in this lifelong pursuit to know the word of God and have it cleanse you. I mean, I don't think it is without cause that the psalmist offers up what really amounts to be his key element in his battle against sin. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would in fact be people of the word because it is through your word that we get to know the word who is Christ and in him are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We live, Father, in an era of weak and shifting sands that seem to run every institution that there is, and the enemy certainly wants one of those institutions to be the church. Help us, Father, to be aware of these things. Help us, Father, to be wise unto these things. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to know what the truth is. And may we ever live these things in light of the fact that you sent your Son pay a ransom that we could never pay and that you call us your own. We pray in his name. Amen.